Welcome to episode 264 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky. And this podcast is for anybody else who likes going out under the stars. So Shane, we have a few Patreon supporters, actually more than a few to thank uh, today. Maybe I'll just uh, hand that one over uh, to you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks to uh, Dave, Chef Ozzy, Charles, Gene, and John. Uh, sort of a collection of uh, some new Patreon supporters and uh, some ongoing uh, re-support, I guess you could call it. <laughs> um, so again, we thank you all for that. And, um, you know, we were having just a brief chat before we press the record button here, Chris. And, uh, mm. you know, we have 46 Patreon supporters. So a big thanks to everybody who keeps uh, uh, keeps supporting the podcast on an ongoing basis uh, through, the, through Patreon. We really appreciate it. It helps us with the expenses and... Uh, all that fun stuff that, you know, is, is really not that fun to talk about. <laughs> but it's, a, it's a reality of trying to do something like this. It is. Yeah. I was, I was chatting with Dave uh, on the phone this week. Uh, Dave's a friend of mine and, and also a Patreon supporter. Um, and uh, you know, kind of, he had, he had sort of mentioned it and it, it is sort of maybe the one, one of the things that, uh, that you, like you said, like you said, we were chatting about beforehand is maybe trying to figure out a way to, to thanks folk, thank these folks on an ongoing basis because uh, uh, when people sign up, we see it, but then it's kind of weird. Like Patreon doesn't really send anything to tell you like um, sort of the ongoing contributors, which is weird. I thought they would. So, you know, sometimes it, unless we go digging it, it, it's not really on the surface of it uh, who is giving on an ongoing basis and maybe who just uh, sent five or six bucks our way on a one-time thing. So which, which we appreciate anyway, but uh yeah, I, I I think I have some comments for Patreon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, but we do appreciate it because I think like we're and we were chatting about this beforehand too. Is that um, we want to do? And Shane, this was your uh, suggestion this week, and I think it's a good suggestion to try to maybe take the recording a bit outside, like when we are doing sessions a bit, um, and do some recording, but. Uh, uh, you have some of the gear for that, and I have none of the gear for that. And uh, we're looking at some options so that maybe uh, we could do um, a recording session to, together, or our, you know, our own observations, or or together but apart. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then, uh, and then maybe that would give us, uh, you know, just some uh, some different ways of sort of uh, conveying the visual observing experiences that. Uh, that we undertake, it'd be nice too to be able to take some mics in into the field and uh, and record with some of our friends, or uh, or like when I have uh, you know a student from the class or or something like that. Hey, I didn't put this in the notes, and I meant to. I knew there was something Ooh, a surprise. Saying. It's well, it's not a surprise to <laughs> oh, you, and it's not a surprise <laughs> to at least one of the listeners. But um, Jim, who is uh, a local listener and uh, supporter of ours. He came over, oh, he's, yeah. he's been coming to my class. Yeah. You know what I'm referring to now. And so he is uh, somebody who's um, got a 10 inch dob and, and uh, he's been uh, coming out to my class and actually he set up one night and really helped out with the class and uh, really appreciated that. And then uh, had him out to my place and, and we tried to do a bit of observing through some sucker holes and yeah, it was kind of a fun experience. So just to hang out Um and uh, anyway, but he had, for, for whatever reason, ended up with uh, two uh, copies of the Sioux French Deep Sky Wonders book. And he gifted one of them uh, to, to me and said, you know, you can give it away 
uh, in your class or on the podcast, but I actually think it's a better giveaway for the podcast because um, it might be a little advanced for many of the people uh, for some, I should say for some of the people in the class, you know, if I, and and then I don't know how I would give it away in the class too, but I think giving away on the podcast is a perfect fit um, for people that, uh, that don't know Shane, have you, do you have a copy of the Sioux French deep sky wonders book or I know I have a copy already. So. No, I don't. And you know, I've always considered that to maybe be one of the biggest gaps in my astronomy library <laughs> because, you know, that book is often recommended and, and, you know, receives a lot of, uh, a lot of positive praise. So I really should just order that darn book and, and get it in the library. Yeah, so the the book is uh, about deep sky observing. There's no planetary stuff. And uh, what it is, is Sue French, um, for, for quite some time, maybe like close to 20 years or close to it anyway, um, she wrote a column in Sky and Telescope magazine on deep sky observing using a small telescope. She had a, like a four-inch telescope, but then also like a, I think like a 12-inch portable and, and a couple other instruments too. But probably... Uh, half or a little bit more than half of the uh, stuff in, in her deep sky wonders was um, using her, I think hundred or 105 millimeter telescope. Uh, so it makes a great companion for people like me that are using smaller scopes. And I think for anybody that's using, uh, you know, uh, the, the traditional uh, amateur telescopes in sort of that uh, roughly three inch or 60 millimeter range up to, uh, you know, a 12 or a 14 inch instrument can certainly get lots of uh, use out of the book. And uh, so she 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 wrote all these articles and then kind of edited them down. There was two copies. There was an early copy was sort of a soft cover um, and very slim down, and then an expanded version from Firefly Books, which is out of Canada here, and uh, and that contains uh, like a really nice selection of different constellations broken up by season. So uh, Jim had an idea, Shane, uh, we, we talked about the idea early in the week for how we're going to give this book away. Um, and uh, yeah, what, what's your recollection of that uh, conversation? Uh, well, I'll be honest, I haven't been too up to date on our emails. I'm probably about 30 behind right now. Uh, I think we were a busy week. Um, we were texting pun, about, was it a pun thing or something? It was like the that? pun thing. Yeah. 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 Okay. So what we're going to look for is um, people's astronomical puns or astronomy puns. And it's got to be like with a bit of a observing slant or anything to do with astronomy is fine. If it's really good, um, that's what we're looking for. People want to write in with their um, uh, astronomy puns and we'll give this, we'll, we'll go for, I think, four weeks and then... Uh, then we'll give it away and we'll kind of do a bit of a random draw. We'll pick some of our, we'll, we'll pick some of our favorites and then we'll kind of do a bit of a random draw. So you just got to send us your astronomy pun uh, to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Uh, just be asked to enter it into the uh, contest to win uh, the Deep Sky Wonders book. And then uh, the other thing Jim offered to do, Shane, which is super nice, is the, uh, uh, he's, uh, somebody who knows a lot more about shipping than I do anyway. And he offered to help uh, ship it out too. So anyway, we'll, uh, we'll work with him on that once, uh, once we get a winner. So yeah, just send us the astronomical pun and uh, tell us uh, about where in the world you are. So then we'll just give like your first name and, and where you are. And then we can, uh, we'll, we'll throw out the next uh, 
five or six weeks, uh, read off a bunch of the puns and uh, give the book away around the second week of, uh, of November. So then you'd get it in time for some winter observing. There's some pretty good winter yeah. observing stuff in there. How's that sound? That sounds good. Let's set the date then. Uh, the submission deadline is November 5th. Okay. And then we will announce the winner on the November 7th episode. Sounds good. Perfect. I like it when a plan comes together. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's good. I think people would, uh, would enjoy it as well. Uh, Okay. One thing I put in here, I'm not sure if you looked, I just, just put this image in here, John Crichton, uh, who's, uh, who's somebody that, that I know personally just lives in the next uh, block over. And the reason why I give his full name is that uh, he's an astro imager and he sent me a beautiful, he's a very good astro. Very good. (laughs) Very good astro imager. So John actually ended up taking my class because he, I think he said he wanted to, he wanted to learn like maybe a little bit more about the constellations and the stuff that he was photographing. And I, you know, and this has happened from time to time and I've had some really wonderful people come through. And so I said, Oh, well, Hey, you know, I'd love to see some of your images, maybe show them in the class. And uh, when he started sending me the images, my jaw just hit the floor the images are uh are unbelievable and uh yeah i I mean you can see this image of the pleiades um which has um you know it's the uh, messier 45 up in taurus it's a cluster of stars but it's got this faint reflection nebulosity around it and then john's uh been working on a technique um to add and and subtract uh stars and uh to be able to bring out some of the fainter, uh, like sort of dark nebulae uh, that are around objects like the Pleiades. And uh, uh, these are stunning photos eh, that he's been producing. Yeah. what I So most people I think are familiar with images of the Pleiades and um, you know, what is, what is always striking is like the blue gassy clouds. They're very wispy. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I love about John's image is um, it's huge. First of all, like it's, it's a very, uh, it, it captures much more of the star field around the Pleiades. Than yeah. Seeing. It's not zoomed right in, but he's, yeah. the level of detail is very high. Yeah. And then what you get, as you mentioned, is all of this other nebulosity around it that is sort of darkish nebulosity maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very, very good. Like I, I mm-hmm. love, I love seeing an image like this presented in a way I'm not used to seeing. And mm-hmm. um, again, you know, Pleiades, it's usually more uh, just the, the cluster itself is more the showcase and it's still mm-hmm. it's here, but you see so much more this way. I love it. The other thing that John's doing, which really catches my eye is, well, he's doing a few things like either he's taking images of objects that uh, maybe we're quite familiar with, like the Pleiades and, and he's applying um, these, I don't know whether, whether they're new techniques or whether it's his take on it or because I'm not an astro imager, um, but what he's able to, to do somehow is when we think about the Pleiades, we think of it sort of being a wash in this blue nebulosity. Um, and certainly he's captured lots of that. Um, but then I wonder if maybe in, in some of the older images anyway that, that we've seen or that I've seen anyway, maybe they're, they're sort of adjusting like the blue tones and, and to bring that out, which, which makes it look quite beautiful or whatever. But somehow John's able to almost bring out some uh, additional colors. So if you look at like the Merope Nebula in there, it has a little bit of a 
dusky kind of reddish brown tone to it. Um, some of the stars actually in his image aren't blue. I think of all the stars as being a blue or white blue or something. And then he's got some orangish stars in here. And uh, have a, it, it looks like the Pleiades, like when I saw him, like that's the Pleiades. And I look, I'm like, wait a sec, is it the Pleiades? No, it is the Pleiades. Just like his own take on it. And the detail is uh, pretty spectacular. But he was showing me how he does it. And what he does is he takes, he's able to um, like decompose the image somehow. I don't know what it's called. There's a technique. And he takes, the, he removes the stars so that he's able to work with just the nebulae. Um, that are in an image and then add the stars back in. So in some of the images that he sent me, he sent me like different copies, one with just nebulae, one with just stars, um, one with them together. Um, and he's really kind of uh, uh, doing, uh, you know, what I can say, and I don't know, it might be something people have been doing for a while, but I, I wasn't aware of this. I didn't know that you could sort of add and subtract the stars and, and the nebulae like that. Uh, it's pretty pretty wild stuff. Have you seen that before? Maybe you have, you know, a little bit more about imaging than I do. Um, I've never seen it nor really heard of it. Um, no. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't really follow a lot of the techniques. Um, the little bit of astro imaging that I've ever done is uh, like what I've always strived for is just like one frame, one shot mm -hmm. uh, with very little post-processing. Um, you know, the, I, I've given a few talks on my approach to imaging and I have always called it sort of lazy or, or very simple imaging <laughs> because, uh, you know, the stuff that like John and others do is extremely, uh, impressive, but there's some, mm -hmm. you know, you, you don't get an image like that without effort, without some work. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. um, you know, I always maintained or wanted to have like a very, uh, a very low touch process. So yeah, I, I'm not super familiar, but definitely love hearing about this stuff. Yeah. And the one thing, maybe I'll just sort of drop back to, to our more common theme of, of visual observing is that, um, John, one of John's images anyway, has been used in, uh, in the observer's calendar, which, uh, which I edit for the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada and is now available um, on the RASC.CAE store. Um, so if people are, are looking for copies, I, I did send some emails and had some conversations. I think Shane, I was telling you about this as well earlier in the week where um, something had gotten messed up with the, the shipping rates. So um, for Canadian shipping rates, they should only be around five or six bucks. And I think they're running around 20 bucks in most cases or $15 for local delivery. And uh, 20 odd dollars for anything outside of um, Ontario. So uh, we, we had some back and forth with the office and uh, I think they're, they either have a correct or it's a work in progress. So if folks are seeing uh, really high shipping rates, be sure uh, not to place the order and send them a, send them an email or something to let them know that, uh, that the shipping rate should be uh, uh, not the same cost as, as the calendar, but um, John and many others um, people like, you know, that people would be familiar with maybe like Wayne Parker of uh, Sky Sheds and uh, Alan Dyer and others contribute the images. And then uh, they're really inspirational images like this one of the Pleiades by John. And then uh, uh, I sort of fill in uh, many of the days of, of the year with uh, different things that you can observe. And, and we have some contributors like uh, Dave and a few others who uh, contribute historical dates. And uh, yeah, anyway, just sort of... Uh, really sort of neat, neat project to be uh, to be a part of. So kind of happy to be the editor of that and happy to have the first one in the bag. So moving on, um, we're getting into the 
uh, full moon portion of this uh, lunation now. So uh, I've been doing some early morning sessions, but uh, have you been able to get up to any observing this week, Shane? Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, this is, again, this is my favorite time of the year because by 7, 7.30, it's pretty dark uh, to be in the backyard, do some observing and, you know, get a couple hours in and still get my normal uh, normal amount of sleep. So uh, yeah, I definitely love it. I was out uh, looking at a number of things. Um, uh, Jupiter is what I'm really focusing in on right now. Just get as much uh, views as I can before it uh, disappears for another year. Um, so this week I was using, uh, the TSA 102, uh, with my Bino viewer and, um, it was, it was some pretty good detail, uh, particularly in the equatorial bands. Um, but the Southern temperate belt, uh, was visible, although not as distinct as it was on the opposition night. So seeing wasn't quite as good this last mm -hmm. time that I was looking, um, but you know, I had an interesting observation and I've yet to, uh, look for some images. I should do this. Well, I should have done this already, <laughs> but anyway, um, just underneath the equatorial Northern equatorial belt. Um, and I would say at, at least this night, it was pretty much center, uh, to, like center of the planet. There was like another dark line, um, very thin, um, but kind of in that white zone underneath the, that Northern equatorial belt. So it, uh, it was quite present, like it didn't come and go. So I'm not sure what I was seeing, but it had to be some sort of, uh, I don't know, you know, new feature or something like that, uh, mm. in the, in the cloud there. Um, I would say the length of this was about one eighth, the diameter of the disc. Um, it wasn't super big, but it was, again, it was there. Um, and the Southern equatorial belt seemed to narrow towards the Eastern limb, uh, quite a bit actually. Um, so I'm not sure again, if that is sort of a, a, a result of the seeing, because sometimes when seeing is poor, I find on Jupiter that you lose some of the detail around, you know, the edges of the disc. Um, so it might've just been that. Um, and then what was interesting, um, uh, so we, we had an email from Larry, I believe it was Larry anyway, that was talking about how he was able to discern sort of the size of some of the Galilean moons through his refractor when he was like racking out of focus a little bit, that some of mm -hmm. the, some of the discs had different sizes. And, uh, so I thought, I wonder if just, you know, visually, if I can maybe identify some of the Galilean moons just based on size. Mm -hmm. And, um, I was able to identify Ga Ganymede, uh, accurately. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Okay. But, um, anyway, after Jupiter, uh, I went just hunting some doubles in Andromeda, just back to the RASC, uh, double star observing list. And I'm sure I've observed these ones before, but I didn't check them off the list. So I went back, had another look and, you know, made sure I, I checked them off the list. Uh, but I looked at, uh, Pi Andromeda or Andromeda uh, with 12 millimeter eyepieces, um, kind of an interesting magnitude contrast. The, uh, the books and the, you know, planetarium software says the primary is 4.3 magnitude and the secondary is seven, mm -hmm. but I like visually it appeared greater to me like that. There was a, a, a larger difference than that. Now it might just be that I'm out of practice, uh, you know, comparing magnitudes of, of um, doubles that aren't matching, but um, I thought that, you know, that the secondary maybe was a little fainter than seven, mm -hmm. uh, both appeared white though, in a very wide separation, very easy double. Um, I think, you know, a three inch uh, telescope would easily split that one. 
then I moved on to 56 Andromeda. Uh, again, a, another fairly wide pairing. Um, I felt the primary had a bit of an orange tone to it while the other was bluish. Now, very similar to all Mac, which is, you know, in that neighborhood, but less distinct than all Mac in terms of the color difference. Um, and then this one is also on the edge of NGC 752. And really what I should have done, like that's a huge uh, open cluster. I should have um, brought out my wide field eyepieces to take that in because I was looking through 12 millimeter orthos and uh, you know, a cluster like that, you definitely need a, a wider field, but the wide fields were indoors and I was just being lazy that night. Mm -hmm. So that, that didn't happen. Sorry, uh, what, then, what cluster was that again? Uh, 752. I believe. Oh, the one up in, uh, it's sort of on the triangle M Andromeda border. That was discovered yeah, yeah. by Carolyn Herschel, I think. Uh, oh, okay. Pretty big open. That's a pretty Huge. big open cluster. Yeah. Yeah. It's enormous. Yeah. And yeah. you know, the, I don't know what the magnitude of those stars are, but they're fairly prominent, at least through the telescope. They really oh, yeah. out. I think it would be a great binocular, uh, target. Oh, it is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah those stars are, uh, some of them are into like the sixth magnitude. You can see the individual stars from a dark site and then like a bit of a, a haze around that area yeah for yeah, sure. yeah it's a naked eye object at a dark site for sure yeah yeah it's it's a neat little area of the sky because there are so many doubles um and then this beautiful giant open cluster so yeah yeah very nice and then uh, the last double there was uh, 59 andromeda uh this was the tightest of the three pairs that i'm talking about here uh these two were almost twins in my mind um they were similar magnitude uh, they both appeared white um, but they definitely were the tightest of, of the three. And, um, I can't remember what the separation was not like, not a super difficult split. It's just the other two were, were quite wide in comparison. Um, so yeah, that was about it. Um, I was hoping to do a little, uh, solar astronomy and I, I did some briefly, but not enough to really report, uh, you know, anything substantial other than I am just blown away what double stacking the etalons does for the hydrogen alpha image when looking at the sun. Just the amount of surface detail blows my mind. It is, mm -hmm. uh, it is just so, so, I don't even know how to say it, but like, you know, in my little lunt, which was a single stack, you could see surface detail for sure. But like this double stack just punches you in the face almost. It, it, it's almost photographic. Like it is really incredible. So I'm, I'm kind of disappointed we're getting into colder weather because that means less solar astronomy for me. But I'll, I'll get into as much as I can before it gets too cold out. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, Chris, that is me. How well, about you, you? You said you were observing pie and we should have mentioned we're recording this on the Canadian Thanksgiving. We are. Yeah, today is Canadian Thanksgiving, I guess. So, so I've been observing some pie as well, but it's uh, more of the uh, clear skies and apple pies variety, as, as Phil would say. So, uh, yes, like uh, your your pie is in the in the refrigerator. It is. It okay. is as as we speak. So, one thing you mentioned. This is sort of an interesting thing, and sort of speaking of of Phil, we had a bit of a back and forth uh, on this as well, and. Uh, this is sort of a subjective thing, I, I suppose, but uh, he was asking about eyepiece type and field illumination, and uh, I sort of had some recent observations. I think you've you've sort of uh, talked a little bit about this throughout the uh, the whole course of the podcast, Shane. But you tend to use um, like a lot of orthoscopic and uh, simpler 
uh, eyepiece designs of, of the maybe three to five uh, element variety, um, particularly when you're doing your observing from the city. Is that, is that a fair assessment or am I going off in a weird direction here? Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's uh, various. Uh, yeah, you're right. I've um, I, I'm using my wide fields less and less, and I'm using the uh, orthos uh, more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, part of it is uh, with bino viewing. I just like how much lighter they are, you know, mm-hmm. compared to uh, some of the wide fields. And and for me, um, what I find really helps with my observing to pick out detail is actually a narrower field of view. Mm-hmm. Um, the image scale almost seems like it's larger as a result. And I know it's not, but it just mm-hmm. feels like I I'm seeing the image in a, that, that it just is bigger mm-hmm. and I'm not as distracted by everything else. And, um, I don't know, I think it helps, but it's, uh, it's obviously just in my head. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if it is. And, okay. and okay. I was doing a little bit of experimenting this, uh, past couple weeks and uh, I've certainly used uh, lots of, I, I have some pretty basic, uh, uh, I should say basic, but at the same time, sophisticated eyepiece like the uh, Pentax 5.1 or 5.19 XO mm-hmm. uh, and the 3.79 XP. And I think I have a, a couple others in, in that same vein, uh, not, not nearly the collection you have. But when I'm in the city, I have noticed that if I'm doing, I want to do some serious planetary observing, that even with my astigmatism, uh, which does impact views all, all the way to pretty much any power, I do tend to prefer those eyepieces um, versus maybe like the uh, multiple element, uh, larger field and uh, uh, more glass um, eyepieces. And I, I think I kind of have sort of stumbled upon something here that... Um, we might not have mentioned uh, overtly, but it definitely is something that that I've noticed. I think you may have noticed this as well. And that is that from the city, if you're using eyepieces that have wider fields of view, um, they can take in um, you know, more of that sky uh, that might have glare or flare in it. And then as well, the one... Uh, main thing that I notice is that many of my real wide field eyepieces have very large eye lenses mm-hmm. and that these tend to pick up a lot more of the straight light and reflection that's around. Mm-hmm. And because they're designed for using with glasses, you have to sort of sit yourself back from them, which allows more of that light to kind of scatter off them. And uh, to be honest, I find some of the wider field designs a little bit more difficult to look through in the city, whereas the uh, simpler uh, design eye pieces uh, without those big eye lenses uh, and which require you to get that eye rate in on top of them uh, just naturally um, reduce or, or maybe even entirely eliminate those uh, those reflections and uh, give you uh, really quite a bit of a better view even though in essence the the image uh, may be uh, pretty similar once uh, once you kind of would control for all those variables but I, I don't know have you have you ever thought about anything like that or yeah, I've, I've definitely noticed, particularly your comment there about the wider, like, so the lens itself is just bigger on these wide field eyepieces mm-hmm. and they definitely do pick up just stray light, you know, right at the entry point there, like where you, mm-hmm. where you start looking through the eyepiece. 
and uh, it can create some really weird reflections um, mm-hmm. or artifacting. So like, you know, my neighbor has some weird lights hanging around their deck and uh, they're solar lights. They're, you know, there's no light switch, so they're on. Yeah, <laughs> and that place looks like a casino. Yeah, I know. It drives me nuts. <laughs> um, I've considered spray painting the solar panel black. So, you know, nobody will know, but it just suddenly stops working. <laughs> That's a pretty good idea. I'm sure they would replace it with something only 10 times as bright. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, y- even these little lights, and they don't actually emit much uh, light. They're not very bright and they're actually pretty well shielded. But they'll like uh like my Leica zoom which has a big piece of glass or the when i had the beta morpheus which has an enormous piece of glass yeah. to look through it would kind of pick up some of that and it was yeah. annoying so what i would end up doing is is shielding my eye with my hand you know so that this stray light isn't hitting mm-hmm. the eyepiece and that would usually do a, a fairly good job but um yeah you know so there's that factor for sure um that plays in yeah like uh, one of the things that I noticed, and I think it was Larry who wrote this past week as well. I'm not sure if you if you read my reply to him or I, I can't remember if I, sometimes I forget to put you in the CC when, when people write us both. And that, that's just my fault. I'm not doing any sort of purpose or anything. I just hit reply and start pounding away. And we often get uh, sometimes six or seven emails a day. So we're trying to make sure to reply to everybody. Um, but Larry had written, and he had bought the uh, five millimeter Pentax XW, which mm-hmm. I had had bought just a few months ago. So these eyepieces uh, theoretically likely from like the same lot and everything. And uh, he had noticed the same thing I had. So in the city, um, when I first was using it, I, I didn't care for the eyepiece much at all. Cause I bought it uh, in the uh, late winter, early spring, something like that. And then, um, you know, I actually sort of had it just sitting on the shelf here and a few weeks back, I kind of maybe six weeks back, I, I started grabbing it for the planets and I was like, well, hey, you know, this eyepiece is pretty much uh, just as good as uh, as the Pentax uh, 5XO. Uh, um, and then I started kind of thinking about, like, why didn't I like it that first? And I think it just simply boiled down to using it in the city with all those lights. So I think, you know, sometimes we think about using like those observing hoods, like we talked about mm-hmm. and had the, had the image uh, one of the listeners uh, sent us of, of Bill uh, Weir wearing his. Um, but you know, sometimes we think about those as being something just to kind of give you a little bit of an edge at a dark sky site, but I think maybe, uh, such an observing hood or making sure you block the, uh, those extraneous light sources, uh, when you're in the city using those wider field eyepieces actually can, uh, can really improve the view. Maybe, uh, maybe more than I, I had really ever thought as much about. So yeah, kind of a bit of a surprise there. The other thing that I noticed is this Shane is that we talked about this briefly, uh, maybe a month or so ago, but, um, like in using some of the vintage ultra wides, like you can get these seven by 35s that have like a 12 or a 13 degree true field of view. Um, when I tried those in the city, uh, I couldn't use them on the night sky. I actually couldn't get them to focus. Um, they just wouldn't work for me. You have to, I have to take my glasses off to use them in order to get the really wide field of view, which, which is fine. Um, not going to be as sharp, but they're not meant to be super sharp binoculars. Anyway, they're meant to give you a really good, super wide field of view, but they wouldn't focus in the city. So I kind of had thought I wasted my money and I was actually going to maybe think about giving them away on the podcast or something, but, uh, I brought them out here and then started, uh, you know, I just one night, um, wanted a pair of binoculars and for whatever reason, take my other set in and had these ones out here and grab them and uh, sure enough could get them to focus. And I was like, huh? So, but it was just enough. It was just enough that I could just get them to focus with 
hardly any room to spare, but under a slightly darker sky, I guess the focal point of my eye must change just enough that I, I could use those under a dark rural sky, um, but could not use them uh, and get them to focus uh, in the city under, well, my backyard is extremely light polluted, so um, couldn't use them in that environment. But anyway, just sort of noticing uh, some differences. So you can take something that might seem unusable in one situation, and it's really a great piece of gear in uh, in another situation just because of the uh, local conditions, eh? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting for sure. Uh, similar thoughts. Like I have those ultra wide, uh, Bushnell, what are they range masters? I think. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I don't care for them, but I've never used them under a dark sky and I was I about you, to sell them. And you said, I think just you wait, gotta, try them yeah, under a dark sky. Yeah, I think <laughs> so you gotta, I'm going to do that. I think you got to bring them out here. And like, I got some of those chairs that recline just yeah. uh, around and you, you want, you know, you want to get in one of those and kick back on the deck sometime with me here. And, um, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. I was really surprised. Uh, yeah, like I said, I just sort of middle of the night one night woke up and it was clear and just kind of, oh, I'll just go in the deck and, you know, kick back in a reclining lawn chair and boom, you know, I was like, hey, these do focus. These are, these are pretty awesome. The, the main difference with them though, is that you kind of have to move like your head and body around a lot more than you do with the, uh, the others where you can kind of just sort of move the binocular a little bit or your eye a bit. But uh, anyway, just uh, one of those things. So yeah, I was able to get some some observing in this week, though. Still, maybe kind of recovering a little bit from it. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So you're you're waking, going to sleep, and then waking up early when the moon has set. Yeah. So I think yeah, you, you know me well on that one, and and I think yeah. anybody who's observed with, with me or know me as an observer for a while knows that um, I do enjoy the early morning sessions, and uh, you know either either a picking. Um, the best times of the night to observe and then just getting up and, you know, cause maybe in the evening and uh, there might still be some clouds kicking around, but you see that uh, in the wee hours after midnight, you know, the sky might uh, settle out and have a, have a slightly better forecast predicted. Um, so I might set up and do like an hour, like you said, you know, when it's uh, dark at seven 30 or eight, eight o'clock now enough to observe, I might do an hour or two and then go to bed for four or five hours and then get up and do uh, do a couple hours, um, you know, sometime between two and, and say five or 6am like it is now. So yeah, I had, uh, had some pretty good, uh, had some pretty good uh, nights and one session in particular was, uh, was really good. I guess it was early Friday morning. I got up just as the moon was setting and, uh, and yeah, I was working away on my, um, what do you call it? White uh, on black paper technique. So uh, since put some images in the, or there's, you know, just photographs of my sketches in the show notes. Not sure if you uh, had a chance to take a look at those. Yeah. Yeah, I did for sure. Yep. Yeah. So, they, uh, they look pretty cool. Yeah. So uh, this is, this is a technique that I'm working on. It's uh, called the Mellish technique by a guy named Scott Mellish, who uh, passed away about, uh, I guess, about 10 or 11 years ago or so now. And he was uh, an Australian uh, uh, person. And uh, what he did is he created a technique, which is basically uh, using pastel and uh, pastel dust that you create by rubbing pastel on uh, on some sandpaper. And then using um, the, just like a regular brush, like a little, a little artist paintbrush and applying using small strokes uh, onto black paper and then adding in the stars 
afterwards with uh, white charcoal pencil and gel pens uh, and this sort of thing. So they're, they're neat because, and I don't know what you, how you feel about these, Shane, because it is, it is a definite, definite uh, departure from the traditional um, charcoal and graphite on white or cream colored paper. But uh, I don't know, like, like, what do you think? You've, you've probably seen some of mine. You've probably seen some other people using this technique on the internet. I certainly am not an expert and I'm just sort of learning it and really uh, a very uh, uh, beginner intermediate sketcher myself. But uh, what are your thoughts on the uh, white on black technique? Well, it, it's a more accurate representation of the night sky. So I think that that first off is, is by far the biggest benefit or, or mm-hmm. what I appreciate the most of this type of sketching. Um, what I find though, and I don't know if this is just me, um, but like the white is very prominent, you know, like it really jumps out as like bright, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm not sure for me, at least if this is a representation or like the, 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 like normal charcoal on white paper seems like a better representation of the faintness of some objects or how they, Mm -hmm. you know, transition from bright to faint within the object. Mm -hmm. Whereas with the white on black, I feel like it's just brighter than what may have been visible at that time, you know, just because of this, such a stark contrast, but I don't know, maybe that's just me. Yeah. I think the, I think my challenge that I found anyway is, um, that I'm just taking like cell phone pictures of my, of my sketches. And, um, although I always had found that, uh, my, my, uh, scans or images, um, digital images of my charcoal on, on, I use more like a cream colored paper for my, uh, for my graphite and charcoal on, uh, on the white paper. Um, I find that with the white on black, um, it, the white ends up being much more enhanced than uh, than than the charcoal uh, or the uh, sorry or the graphite on the white paper does. I think it's just just like the albedo, basically the the luminance of having white on uh, on black. Um, for example, there there's one sketch I did of uh, M seventy nine and I actually put in a ton of stars and in, in my image, like you can't even see the stars in my sketch. Like you see the stars, um, that's like the main detail, and then there's sort of like haze around them. Um, but in the uh, in the image that I took of them, you you can't you can't hardly see them at all. They, it just doesn't come through. So I got to figure out a better way of scanning them. I'm not really sure if there's like a like a scanner I can get. I mean, I have a scanner at home. I might try to resurrect that. Uh, yeah, not really sure. Might try a different cell phone or, or something, but that definitely is uh, one of the challenges I'm having with them. Yeah. 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 I don't know much about that. I can't really comment on, you know, if there's uh, different ways to capture that or not, but. Mm. But uh, in person though, I mean, they, they're kind of neat because they really tend to capture more of like the ethereal and, and, uh, and faint nebulae um, in the deep sky objects. So um, I find like the actual, some of the, and I'm just kind of getting to this point now, just as I've been tooling around with it the past month or so, um, some of the sketches in the field. So I typically do a field sketch or two or three or five, and then I'll do a final good sketch. Sometimes I'll do a, tons and tons of field sketches before I kind of feel like I get to the point. So um, part of the thing that I'm kind of putting forward when I'm 
sending the images and that is is more like a a bit of a a log of of my you know ongoing process versus the final goods um and you know we got these uh got these giant uh black uh, pieces of paper so i found that like my huge black paper is kind of heavy so i'm using like now a small sketching um book at the eyepiece that is also black paper so i just got this last weekend and some of the uh, sketches that are coming off in the field are actually a little bit more they're getting closer they're getting closer to uh to kind of what i'm what i'm hoping to uh to achieve with this but yeah it's 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 a work in progress um let's see so some of the things sort of comparing is that uh requires fewer um pieces of gear so with the uh, with the graphite on the white paper um i have all kinds of pencils whereas with this there's only really two to use one is the general's um white charcoal pencil and the other is the conte uh what is it i cut it here i'm just going to grab it here it's the conte uh, 1355 or pastel 013 france 1355 and one thing that i find with the general's charcoal pencil is that um i can barely do half a sketch or a quarter of a sketch and i gotta resharpen it the conte pastel goes a little further um, and i bought a stick of the uh, general's charcoal to actually make some nebulae with it and uh, i find that the general's charcoal is whiter than the pastel um, but, uh, yeah, for whatever reason, I, I can't really seem to get the charcoal to, to go as far on the generals as the, uh, as that pestle, but I did a few sketches, um, you know, and these are sort of good ways just to even track my own observations. I, I had a pretty good view of Messier 79 the other morning, which is, uh, in Lepus just below, um, just below Orion there. Have you ever observed Messier 79 there, that globular cluster that's, uh, it's it's kind of low on our horizon, eh? Yeah, yeah. I've seen it many times. It, it has been a while since I've looked at it, but mm -hmm. um, in fact, you know, I'm trying to think. It might have been, it might have been with my 12 inch light bridge was the last time I looked at it. Yeah. So I was able to kind of see like some of the like actually quite a few of um, sort of these vertical star chains and trails with it, mm -hmm. and uh, just kind of sort of follow that around a few bright stars in the middle, and just sort of notice that it had a tighter core, and then sort of um, off to one side, it was more hazy and didn't have refined or like um, easily like you couldn't pick out the stars easily, and then like towards the top, um, I could actually get some of the the individual stars there. And the other thing I took a look at, this one is really a, a difficult object and I've tried for it like so many times. I think I, I definitely have lost count. Uh, mm -hmm. Probably more than a hundred times I really tried for it and thought I had a few times and couldn't quite confirm it, which is the Witch Head Nebula, um, mm -hmm. just, just up off of uh, Rigel in Orion, but it's actually in uh, Eridanus or Eridanus. Um, not sure if you've ever attempted for that one before. No, I don't think so. If I would have, it would have been with you. <laughs> you know, yeah. Probably one of the failed attempts. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's it's a large reflection nebula. Uh, I think it's around two or so degrees, maybe a little bit longer in, uh, in sort of length or, or height than maybe the better part of a degree across. And uh, it shows up really well in images, sort of like this uh, purple, um, little bit of blue, 
and it, it very much looks like a, a witch's head. Um, but the challenge with uh, observing this thing is, I, and it is a little bit challenging, I, I find, to observe reflection nebulae, um, is that Rigel is, is close and pretty bright, bright, so you can kind of get some mm-hmm. flaring uh, in the field of view. And then as well, any kind of um, high cloud or, or poor atmospheric conditions are, are going to limit uh, what, what you can actually see there. But um, when I was out after it on, on the morning of the 7th, I noticed that uh, near um, one of the stars in, in the sort of general field, and I didn't really prep too much to, to hunt it down. I just sort of picked it as, as an object for the night. Um, I noticed that, yeah, there was definitely some nebulae, some brighter portions of nebulae uh, near and around the star and another star and that sort of thing, and kind of more or less triangulated uh, some of the stars that are nearby, like Rigel and a few of the other prominent stars and sort of plotted them in and then just kind of went after it and sort of detailed out like the general uh, modeling in, in the sky that, that was there, but definitely on the uh, the north part or the upper part of the nebulae, like it definitely was um, visible um, and then, uh, the bottom part was kind of coming and going, but I sort of plot of that as, as like sort of dabbing the uh, paintbrush in the, in the pastel to kind of give that modeled appearance. And that would sort of come and go, but I was, I still wasn't a hundred percent sure because I don't know, it's, I always find like when you're really trying to nail something for the first time, it, it's still kind of, you could convince yourself that you didn't see it. And I'm always very doubtful of my observations anyway, but, uh, when I uh, kind of reduced it down and and made a good copy inside after a couple sketches outside, um, then finally once I sort of got the, the my final sketch together, I compared it to uh, my software and, and the image that overlays in the software, and definitely uh, had the orientation right, um, and then had the uh, brighter section uh, that I had picked up pretty I thought fairly easily was uh, the brighter section of that nebula, so um, not just sort of random groupings of really faint background stars or anything. So uh, yeah, I was, I was kind of surprised to, uh, you know, to be able to sort of pull it together and, and confirm that in, indeed I had observed the, uh, the witch head nebula, but that was sort of one of those objects that uh, I was wanting to get a good observation of because uh, I remember years ago when podcasts and astronomy were first coming out, somebody had done one and was telling people that they should show trick-or-treaters coming to the door of the witch head nebula. And I was like, there's no way these trick-or-treaters are going to see that from like any kind of location where you're going to have a house with trick-or-treaters uh, coming to the door. That uh, That's going to be far too light polluted considering from really dark skies, I can just barely get this this thing and, and have doubted it for a number of years. Yeah, yeah, that that is a very challenging object. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I appreciate how you approach that of like very critical analysis because it is sometimes your brain can take over and convince you that you're seeing things. And it's uh, super important with, uh, you know, any of those real faint, challenging objects to, to be extremely critical because mm-hmm. it's, uh, often that stuff is just on the threshold of detection oh, yeah. and, you know, it's not super apparent. So, yeah. And the other thing that I'm, I'm doing with these observations, like I'm really, you know, and I've been observing for decades, but just to continue to build my skills and to continue to uh, push myself, you know, it's kind of one of those funny things. I, I can go out and kind of whip around the sky pretty quick and show uh, stuff to people and always seems like a little bit of a magic trick to them probably, but it, it, they'll get to that point anyway. It really isn't. Anybody can kind of learn to do that, but uh, then to, to really begin to, uh, to sort of still um, 
you know, evolve my own and, and uh, advance my own observing. I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's something that, uh, that everybody can still do no matter, no matter where they are on this. One of the other things that I, I took an observation of is the, uh, that, that nebulae around the Lambda Orionis uh, region or the Lambda Orionis ring, I think is, as they call it, or the angelfish uh, nebulae, um, which is right around the head of those three stars at the top of, uh, of Orion. It's not that faint. I don't find that nebula particularly challenging. This is one of those ones that uh, uh, seems to sort of have slipped by and people tend not to observe, but uh with an H beta or UHC filter, I, I find that nebula is actually quite visible and uh, yeah, can, uh, can even get uh, the brighter portions of that even without, uh, without any filter at all. I'm not sure if you've ever taken a gander at that, but it's a huge nebula. Did you ever, did you ever take a look at that through a telescope, small telescope? No, no, I haven't. Yeah. So this is a huge nebula. It stretches most of the way across the uh, top portion of, uh, of Orion there right around Lambda Rhinus. I think it, it is just about seven or eight degrees in, in you know, across. It's huge. Um, and then in my sketch, I just, I just sketched the brighter portions. But one thing I want to do is get my 50 millimeter set up and, uh, and go back and, and do another sketch of that because that will take in 10 degrees. And I think I can get the, the whole thing there. Just need the, the night to do it. I think I sketched it last year too. I, I sketch uh, this nebula. I've sketched this nebula a few times. Um, and then I took a sketch of the, uh, of the uh, Rosette Nebulae. And that's one that you would have observed quite a few times, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which is just up in Monoceros, uh, Northern Monoceros between uh, kind of sort of, you form like a like a funny angle between Betelgeuse and uh, maybe like Procyon or somewhere in Gemini, you're gonna land on the Rosette, which is a grouping of stars then it has this uh, nebulae uh, nebulosity around it and uh, could see like the bright grouping of stars and could see the nebulae really easy with any any filter uh, at all. And then, uh, yeah, I could see kind of that those stars were sort of sitting in a bit of a hollow with still some nebulae kind of streaking through and then, you know, some brighter nebula right around and some sort of fainter nebula kind of trailing off in a few different directions. Not entirely happy with the way that sketch came out, but uh, yeah, it was sort of uh, just sort of a fun thing. I actually had gone and observed it um, just cause it was such a great night and I only had like a couple hours. Um, I had observed it, but when I came back to it, after I did the other sketches that I had taken a break and the sky had deteriorated a little bit. And then, uh, yeah, I was sketching just as the early, uh, the beginnings of some, some light maybe was starting to come through from Aurora or, uh, or just from the, uh, from the sunrise that was coming along. So Anyway, that's sort of some some of my observations there. I took oh, I took a look at the Orion Nebula, of course, and I did take a look to try to see the uh, the horse head, but couldn't see that even with my H beta. And uh, took a look at uh, M seventy eight. I think it's the one just above the the belt of Orion. Took a look at that, and took a look at Barnard's loop using the uh, hydrogen beta filter, H beta filter. Um, yeah, so kind of did a bit, a bit of a tour around there and then, you know, had the binoculars, took a look at the Pleiades and a few other things, but, uh, yeah, no Mars observations this time. It was just strictly trying to get in some deep sky fun. Well, while it was dark. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you had some pretty good sessions. Yeah. Yeah. I was really, really happy to get a good sketch off of the, uh, uh, of the witch head nebula. That was, that was the main one I really wanted to get. So, um, 
you know, spent uh, the better part of an hour on that. The other ones, I'm just kind of, it's kind of disappointed uh, the way M79 came out. It looks better on my sketchbook and uh, Lambda Rhinus came out okay, but I, I kind of think that the rosette kind of looks like uh, one of the ghouls or goblins from Ghostbusters more than, more than it should. Anyway, it's good, good fun. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear if anybody else. I think there's a few other people out there that are using that uh, white on black uh, technique, and you know, we'll see uh, we'll see how how this uh, this practice evolves. But really, it is just about getting down to uh, to improving my my observing and uh, you know making uh, making some better observations and and confirming oh, you know what I've been you know maybe thinking I've been seeing, but then you know really being able to. Uh, go back and, and determine that I, I did make an observation after all. I convinced myself uh, otherwise just of the eyepiece, but uh, by keeping sort of an accurate uh, representation, then yeah, you can kind of do that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so what method do you prefer with sketching? Well, I've, I've got no preference at, at this okay. point. I like the way the, the white on the black looks, especially in my log, like in, in the actual uh, sketchbook. Um, they look really good. I'm just struggling to get them to come through. Um, and then, uh, yeah, just, just working away at it. I like using the brush. I find that sometimes, well, for the, for the graphite, we tend to use like a smudging tool, like it's like rolled paper. And mm -hmm. what I find with that is when you use that, it's, it's more of a destructive process. I think my, as my guy was saying, where you're really like pushing, the graphite into the paper and it kind of can distort the paper quite a bit. Whereas with the, uh, with the white pastel or charcoal, as you're brushing it in, if you make a mistake, I can just take my finger and, and wipe it right off and get the vast majority. And I can take an eraser and get a hundred percent of it off super easy without destroying and altering the paper. And then I can reapply. And so I'm much able, much easier, easier. It's much easier to edit the uh, working on it. Whereas I find with the graphite, um, if you make those kind of mistakes, especially with the smudging tool, you're done because you've put the stars in, then you're putting the nebula on. And then if you have to go and rearrange that, you, you might as well just do another sketch. Like it's going to take mm -hmm. so much work to, to fix it. But this, this way you, you have that control, but I've never used paint brushes other than for like painting a windowsill before. So I definitely, uh, that that's definitely a technique that I I'm struggling a little bit with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's very interesting. I, you know, I think it's good to talk about like your journey of sketching because I believe a number of our listeners are, are probably doing similar things. So it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's good to talk about and share some learnings. Yeah. Yeah, I know it is. And uh, yeah, it's like sort of one of those weird things where I'm a little bit reluctant to talk too much about it because like I'm just like really a beginner sketcher, maybe maybe an intermediate and uh, I have very little artistic talent. Um, and then trying a new technique is really, I find uh, intimidating and uh, fairly challenging for, for me to do. Whereas uh, I know there's lots of other people out there that are that are much more skilled than I am. But um, it serves a couple of purposes, like I said, to, uh, to confirm my own observations. And then as well, uh, when they do come off, um, well, like the witch head did come off pretty good. Um, uh, I'm pretty happy, but for right now, I'd say probably on average one in three, I'm reasonably happy with, um, and seems to form an accurate portrayal. And then the others, um, 
yeah, not as happy with, but certainly just by simply doing the sketching, I think uh, uh, makes me a better observer. So yeah, um, you know, but I think that's worthwhile as an end in itself. Yeah, absolutely. Anything to increase the observing skills as well worth the endeavor. Yeah. All right. Anything else to uh, add to this episode? Nope. That's it, Chris. All right. Well, thanks, Shane. Thanks everybody for listening. Uh, be sure to submit your astronomical puns to actualastronomy at gmail.com so that you can be entered into the draw for Sue French copy of Deep Sky Wonders provided by our listener, Jim. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>